Lord Jesus, we have heard your name mentioned this morning and that you are this person who transforms lives. Lord Jesus, we have seen this act of going in and coming out of the water. And we want to understand what that's about. So, Lord Jesus, would you please speak to us? Would you help us to understand what we're about to read? We know that you spoke to people and you told them to write things down. We know that you have preserved this record for us so that we can know you and walk with you and be obedient. So, Lord Jesus, would you please reveal yourself to us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you will need a Bible because we are going to be having a look at a number of uh, pieces of the text this morning. We are not in John's Gospel. Oh, shock, horror. For our visitors, we've been in John's Gospel for, for a few weeks. We've been in John's Gospel for over a hundred weeks. All right. So in your Bible, around about the last third of it, as you flick through, is a section called the New Testament, uh, basically a newer collection of writings. They're about 2,000 years old for us, but they are a newer collection. And we're going to be in a book uh, inside that section called Acts. In your Bible, it might be called the Acts of the Apostles. So we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which are the Gospels, and then we go Acts, which is the fifth book. And the book of Acts is written by the same guy that wrote Luke. Uh, it's the second half of his writings. Um, he was a physician. He has a, quite a well-developed vocabulary for the ancient Greek-speaking world. And he writes his gospel or his good news, his record of who Jesus is in Luke. And then in the second half, he writes this book called Acts, talking about all these things that were going on in the New Testament. We're going to have a look at a whole lot of different passages out of Acts and other parts of, of the New Testament this morning. But let's start with chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to start reading at verse 26. We're going to read through to the end of Acts chapter 8. And then we will go on from there. We're going to branch off this and come back to it at the end of what we're looking at this morning. It says this. Now an angel of the Lord, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. 
Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. That prophecy was written 900 years at least before Jesus ever walked the face of the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Some of you there between verse 36 and verse 38 will notice verse 37 is either missing or is in parentheses. It, in, uh, in the text I'm reading from, it's as a footnote down the bottom. And it says, some manuscripts include here, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's read on from verse 38, then we'll come back and talk about that. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Baptism. We have this picture of someone being baptized. And all throughout the New Testament, we find that when someone gives their life to Jesus, they then do exactly what you saw happen this morning. They come and they hop down into some water and they come up out of the water. And baptism is a picture that we find in the Gospels that there's this guy by the name of John. We call him John the Baptist. And he was not the first Baptist in the way we talk about Baptists. This kind of Baptist has only been around for about 500 years. But John is more rightly called John the Baptizer. He turns up and he is this forerunner of Jesus. He is this messenger that God appoints to go and to prepare the way for when Jesus turns up. So John wanders around the wilderness. He is an intimidating person to look at. He dresses in camel hair. He eats locusts and wild honey. And he goes everywhere looking like some kind of wilderness holy man saying to everyone God is coming and you need to repent you need to do a 180 and completely turn your back on on the life that you have been living and on all the things you've been doing that that God is is offended by and he it is this potent offensive message and he goes and he preaches this to all the people that thought they knew God And John tells them to get baptized. He actually, this is before Jesus turns up, John says, take this picture of ceremonial washing and come and and use this as a picture of, of being washed of your old life and having a new life dedicated and given to God. And when Jesus turns up, Jesus himself comes to John and says, you need to baptize me. This is kind of the first and most important reason that we practice baptism, because Jesus did it. And so then Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, he tells his followers to go out and to tell everyone about what he has done. That Jesus, this eternal, uncreated Son of God, came into human existence and he lived perfectly and he was crucified on a cross, which we talked about last week, 
And then he went down into death and came up in resurrection to new life. And that in doing that, he makes a way for us to have a relationship with God. That's the good news. But he says, use this picture of baptism. Wherever you go, baptize people in the name of the Father, Father God, and of the Son, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God that comes and lives inside people when we give our life to God. And so we, we have this picture that you've seen today that when we go down into the water, it's a picture for us of going down with Jesus into death and coming up out of the water is coming up to new life in Jesus. Now, some of you may have had experience with other Christian traditions where, as we talked about earlier, where children are sprinkled or children are baptized or children are christened. So very early on in Christianity, there were a lot of people who were converts to Christianity where they went, actually, Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer, which, is, which has been prophesied about for hundreds of years. But these people being Jewish and being followers of Abraham, they already had a way of showing that they belonged to God. And that was, rain, hail, or shine, circumcision. And circumcision, if your household belonged to God, was done to every male in your household. And we find very early on in Christianity that there are groups of people who now follow Jesus and they swap out this picture of circumcision for this act of baptism. And so the same as any adult would have been circumcised when their household was dedicated to God, all the men of the household and all the children too, baptism begins to be practiced that way in Christianity. And there are churches right up until it was the dominant form of baptism right up until about 500 years ago that if you were a Christian or if you were born into a household which practiced Christianity, you would have been sprinkled or christened or baptized as a child. Then this little thing happens called the Reformation, which is a Christian civil war. And it goes on in, in the most violent part of it for 80 to 100 years. And it's Christians going, you know what? This has become a tool of political power. And that's exactly what it was at that particular point in time, that Christianity had become a weapon of the state. It was used to control people. Uh, normal people like you and I did not have the Bible in our own language. Only the highly educated elite had it. Public education didn't exist. So unless you were religiously trained and taught to speak Latin, you, you had no chance of ever reading the scriptures. And at the same time as the Reformation, this came into existence because of a printing press. Before then, there might have been one Bible in a church and it would have sat up the front, often under lock and key. So then what happens is Christians start to pick these scriptures up and they read for themselves about these different practices. Let's read a few more passages of scripture. You're still in the book of Acts, I hope, if you've closed it on your finger. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, the first half of it is about this extraordinary event that happens where the Spirit of God for the first time absolutely lands on a whole bunch of people. And there's some very strange things that come out of that. But I want us to, to have a look here down at verse 38. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after Peter, who was one of Jesus' followers, 
has, has given this amazing address to this crowd of people because this weird Holy Spirit stuff has gone on. He says this, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Again, that word repent means to do a 180 and to turn your back on, on the life you've had. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So this practice of baptism, as, as we see it start to unfold in the text of the Bible itself, is something that we come into contact with adults doing a lot of the time. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, we don't actually have any clear picture of a child being baptized. And Christians, around about 500 years ago, were really challenged by this to go, you know what, even if I had this experience as a child, there is something about making a statement as an adult as someone who has now decided for themselves, I am going to do this. I am going to use this sign to show that I belong to God. And right here we can see that we had 3,000 people who made that decision on the same day that they actually heard about Jesus. We find this in a number of other texts. I want to take you across to um, a peculiar one. We're still in the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 18. And we're going to start at verse 24. And this one will be a little bit confusing just for a moment. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. So Luke, in his record here in the book of Acts, has gone on and is telling all sorts of different stories as the apostles and the disciples spread out across the ancient Near Eastern world. And it says here in verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. These are ancient cities. Some of them you can still go and visit today. He was a learned man. He was educated with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here is someone who has heard about Jesus, and here is someone who is going around teaching people about Jesus, but he has only got this picture of going into the water attached to turn your back on your old life. And so wherever he goes, that's what he teaches, this picture of being washed. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. That's where all the Jewish people would go to study and, and pray together and learn. When Priscilla and Aquila, who is a, a married couple, Heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So they give him some more detail. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters in the church encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. He was vigorously, he, he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Keep reading on. So, he has turned up at Ephesus. He did all this teaching. Now he's gone, and Paul turns up. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, did that Holy Spirit stuff happen to you? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, turning your back on your old life. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They went through the water again. See, even in the Bible, we have people who've been through the water once, and then when it makes sense to them, when something in their own thinking or in their own heart has changed, they are baptized again. When Paul placed his hands on them, verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Speaking in tongues and prophecy is a whole nother morning. We're not going to go there this morning. So we end up with, with this radical change 500 years ago in what Christianity looked like around the known world with this Christian civil war, but people going, actually, what if, what if this practice is actually powerful when we put this practice before, before people to make a choice of their own? And that's really where we're going this morning. We can have a, a picture of baptism where we can see it as kind of a mystical, super-spiritual like spell or, or something like that. We can end up with a picture of baptism that's not in the text. Or we can end up thinking that because we were a child and someone sprinkled us or christened us or baptized us, that somehow that makes us belong to God. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. If Jesus belongs to you and you belong to him and you knit your life into God and you walk in his way, if you walk with him and talk with him, then baptism has meaning. Otherwise, it is just a, a religious rite. It's a ceremony. It's something which someone has done to you or something which you have done and never actually thought about. So this morning, I want you to have a good understanding of what baptism is and what baptism is not. This sign is simply that. It's a sign. This thing is, is why we are called a Baptist church. Because out of all the different groups that split in and amongst Christianity 500 years ago, the Presbyterian church is called the Presbyterian church because the way they run is they have a presbytery. The Lutheran church is called the Lutheran church because they followed the teachings of Martin Luther. The Methodist church is called the Methodist church because they were highly methodical. I'll give you one guess why the Baptist church is called the Baptist church. Because there were, there were all of these different groups and when they started getting together, most of what they believed was actually exactly the same as everyone else, but they chose to do this bit differently. This sign is still used today. Baptism is a practice where you as an individual choose to be baptized. That's 
the reason that we do it this particular way. And I believe, and for 500 years, there have been people who have been coming back to the Scriptures going, this seems to be what we see in the Scriptures. This is what we see in the text. These two things, being a follower of Jesus and getting baptized. For the first 200 years after the Reformation, Baptists hardly wrote in any of their guidelines about church that you had to be baptized to be a member because it was a given this idea that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you get baptized. We don't even need to say that. Those two things just happen. But over time, as churches get more systematized, as we have more processes, as we have more guidelines, we can end up putting into practice, and this church has this as a practice, that in order to belong fully and to to be really plugged into members' meetings and some of that sort of stuff, baptism, what we've seen here this morning, is a prerequisite. But that's not what baptism is about. That's a function that we have of it now, but that's not what the thing specifically is about. Also, as you would have seen this morning, we have put emphasis on a personal individual confession to actually open your mouth and to tell other people what's gone on in your heart. Again, we don't see that specifically throughout the New Testament. There is no recipe. There is no specific guideline about how old or how young a person is supposed to be, about how tall or how short, about what clothing they're supposed to be wearing, about what building they're supposed to be in or not in, about how much water or how few water. The word baptizo in the Greek literally means to submerge. That's why we go with submerging because we think we're pretty safe with the submerging. But we can end up with all these other complex ideas. What about people who are hydrophobic, people who are really scared of water? What about people who are physically unable if they're on life support, if they're imprisoned? What if we hate crowds? What if we hate public speaking? Scripture does not give us a formula. And none of these things are the focus of baptism. Jesus is the focus of baptism. If you belong to Jesus, then I encourage you to go to the Scriptures and to have a look. Even if you hop online and just do a word search, baptize, baptism, baptized, find me all the references in the New Testament and just read them. And the Lord will tell you what he thinks. Two more points and then we'll finish up. Do not put your hand up to get baptized because it's popular or because it's fashionable, or because your friends are doing it. Do not do it for the sake of church membership. Do not do it because someone is guilting you or elbowing you in the ribs. Do not do it because you've been pressured into it. All of these reasons are wrong reasons. Baptism is simply a sign that you are real about belonging to and following Jesus. If you're not real, don't do it. If you are real, do it. It is really that simple. At the same time that we can have strange ideas for choosing to do baptism, we can also refrain for reasons that may not be adequate as well. We can feel that it's too soon or too late. We can feel that we're too young or too old or that it's too public or not public enough, or that it's too hot or too cold. 
or that we don't have the right gown. In setting all this stuff up yesterday, I found we have a box of baptism gowns. If you want a gown, we have gowns. We can think that we're too imperfect or even that we're too perfect. But baptism is not about taking the meaning we want it to have and putting that meaning onto it. We do it because of the meaning that Jesus gives it. And it is simply this. It is a sign that you are real and that you are fair income. And it's a sign that Jesus gives to you that you can use to say something to him. It is a sign that Jesus gives to you so that you can say something to him. If you are a small group leader, you are qualified to baptize someone. If you are an elder or a deacon or a ministry leader, you are qualified to baptize someone. There is nothing in scripture that forbids it. Uncles and aunties, you are qualified. Parents, you are qualified. Neighbors, grandparents, anyone who belongs to Jesus and Jesus belongs to you, you are qualified. Wouldn't it be great to find out this week that another five people got baptized midweek because they couldn't wait to get back into the building next Sunday? I encourage you not to misunderstand this act or this sign, not to misuse it or treat it too lightly or again, like it's some magical, mystical thing. It's really simple. If you belong to Jesus, then baptism is for you. This is a picture that he gave you so you can say something to him. So, Acts chapter 8. Let's recap. Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? I would like you to ask yourself that question. We have water here. And I'm going to leave it here all week. This baptistry will stay full until the service next Sunday morning. And if you call me at two in the morning on Wednesday, I will answer the phone very sleepily. (laughs) And if you say, Bob, I have to do this, then I will be down here. What is there that is in your way? Have we given baptism a definition which we don't find in Scripture. Those of you who are, who are visitors with us, with us this morning who, who don't know about this whole Jesus thing, who are not convinced or who don't find the answers adequate, I encourage you, continue seeking. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then he will stand up to all scrutiny. And if he is not who he claims to be, then he deserves all scrutiny. Either way, bring your very best questions and don't stop searching. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I do thank you 
for, for these people who have been in a position this morning. We know some people haven't been in a position to. But we thank you for those who have been in a position to declare that statement loudly and boldly this morning that you are their Lord and their Saviour. Lord Jesus, I know that there are, there are some of us here this morning who are really wrestling with this because it is a bold and out there public statement and there is no going back on it. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would speak to people, that you would meet them where they are at, that no one would do it because it's popular or because there's social pressure, but that it would, between, it would be between you and that person. And whether it happens here in a church building or in a river or a lake or a bathtub or a channel, that, Lord Jesus, we would be stirred up to make that statement to you yourself, that we are real about belonging to you. Lord Jesus, please be at work in our hearts. We celebrate this morning with those who have been in a position to, to go through this. And Lord, we ask that you would continue leading us and guiding us, stretching us, helping us to represent you faithfully to this town and this community, to show them your love and the power of your blood and your resurrection and your transformation. Lord Jesus, thank you for all these things. And in your precious name we pray this morning. Amen.